0: let's talk about let's finish up and i'm going to go through this really fast cuz i've got to get to the the section that we're actually supposed to be covering today so let me make sure i get to the right section here uh, let's see okay this is i think where we left off here where we just a, a brief uh conclusion to our topic on the introduction to theology we talked about how theology is a worshipful exercise for lack of a better term it's something that's to ignite you into worship it's not just information it's not just data it's something that should ignite your heart to praise the lord and to glorify him and as we conclude this section there's a, a quick note about how to deal with doctrinal disagreement. Okay? How, do, how do we handle that? And I think one of the questions that you can ask is, what is the relational context for this individual who you're having a disagreement with, um, again, these are just some practical notes of how to deal with this. this. Is something that Steve put together, and it's incredibly helpful. So I highly recommend that you take thought to these things and 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 use some of these things as you're working with people that you have doctrinal disagreements with. First of all, is this a brother or a sister in Christ? Are you dealing with someone who's actually a Christian? That makes a difference on how you approach the kind of the the, the the disagreement that you're having with that person. Uh, do you have spiritual oversight over this person? Is this kind of one of those um, older brother, younger brother situations? Is this one of those situations where maybe you're in a leadership position, a deacon or deaconess position, and you have someone who's maybe serving on your team? Uh, That can play a role into how you handle that that disagreement. You want to come with a lot of understanding and compassion. Not compromising your position, obviously, but coming with understanding um, to the situation. Or are you dealing with an unbeliever? And if you're dealing with an unbeliever, that doesn't mean compassion goes out the door. That means that you're working with that person to the end to have them um, believe and trust in the gospel of Jesus Christ. That's the main goal. So, You know, whether you're dealing with a a nitpicky uh, situation or issue that this person maybe has brought to you from Scripture, and they're saying, well, I don't believe this because of this little thing here, make sure to keep the main thing the main thing, that you're working toward gospel implications into that person's life, leading to salvation. That would be the goal. For for instance, like... uh, Their view of pneumatology really doesn't mean a whole lot if they're not saved. You want to make sure that you're keeping it the main thing. Uh, The main thing is the main thing. And then what is your goal? What What is your goal? Your purpose must not be to win a debate or to display your knowledge. It's really easy. This is something that I think is... In a lot of our hearts, when we approach debate issues, it's really easy to want to prioritize to win the debate. And we may not even, uh, that may not even be the forethought, that may may not even be the main thing on our in our thinking, but that is a lot of times what's going on deep in our heart, and we have to be careful and guard against that. It's not to win a debate. It's not to show how much you know. In fact, 2 Timothy chapter 2, I love this verse. 2 Timothy chapter 2, uh, verse 24 and in verse 25 actually, talks about how the Lord's bond servant, the Lord's slave, must not be quarrelsome, but he must be kind to all, able to teach. This is interesting that able to teach is in there. Kind to all, able to teach, patiently enduring evil, correcting those who oppose with gentleness. That is a high calling. But that's what it means to be the Lord's slave. To be the Lord's bondservant. You're kind to all. Able to teach. I argue that able to teach there in that context is talking about you're not just someone who can dispense data upon people. You're not just a lecturer. That's not what able to teach means in that context. It means that you're able to bring people along graciously and kindly. That's what able to teach means. And that's the same term that's used in 1 Timothy 3, by the way, when it talks about the qualifications for an elder to be able to teach. So it may play a role into how you understand able to teach. It's not just, well, I can give you data from the pulpit, and now you should you know, live that out, go do that. No, it's someone who's able to teach means they're able to bring people to the Word of God. My dad talks about this a lot when, when talking about shepherding and counseling and ministry. Um, You sometimes have preachers that bring the word of God to people. Yes, right? That's good. That's important. That's a part of it. But you also need to be able to what? Bring people to the word. And that is a challenge to make sure that we're not just giving people information, but that we're actually shepherding their hearts, knowing where they're at and helping them to come along. Okay, so this is what it means to even speak the truth in love, like Ephesians 4, verse 15 says, um, which is a great uh, flavor of a word we don't have time to get into, but it basically means, it literally says in the Greek text, truthing in love. It's taking that word truth and turning it into a verb, and you're actually acting and bringing truth upon people. All right, and then what kind of doctrine is at stake is another question that you should ask yourself. Is this a doctrine that is necessary for the life of the church? In other words, would this be something that's heretical if we don't believe this? So that should be something that should be considered. Like the deity of Christ, the virgin birth, the trinity, or justification by faith alone in Jesus Christ alone. Those are essential for the life of the church. Also, there are doctrines that... You could say are necessary for the health of the church, okay? Which is somewhat similar, but it's it's maybe if there was some kind of and on some of these issues, maybe they're not heretical, perhaps maybe, uh, but more of. Um, you're in serious danger if you don't hold to these things. It's you have to be very careful. For instance, um, lordship, salvation. There's that kind of a. I don't know. That's that's kind of a one that goes between number one and number two. Um, but other things that maybe for the health of the church that aren't as bad, like you know, how do spiritual gifts work, or um, paedo baptism, things like that. That. Um, are important, um, it's, it, it affects the health of the church, and we need to be careful of those things. Also, the practice of the church. Are there, are there doctrines that are being disagreed upon that deal with more of the pr- uh, practical elements related to the church? For instance, the, the church government, uh, how the church is running, how it's operating, uh, that's one of those things I think that this church does such a good job at, is that they understand leadership and how that affects the body of Christ as a whole and how, how to do that at the eldership level where there's unity of mind and deferring to one another. That's something that they constantly emphasize to themselves all the time. Um, or... Um, as Steve puts in here in the notes, one's millennial position. <laughs> the practical elements there, right? That can, that can affect how people approach their worship before God and how they approach their life, how they think about things. And then finally, doctrines that are more speculative. Um, things that are not so clear in Scripture, things that are more in be- reading between the lines or are gray areas. Just be careful about being really staunch on issues like that. Areas of Christian liberty. Uh, the timing of the rapture. Yeah, I mean, it plays into the role of of the millennial, uh, millennial kingdom, but the timing of the rapture, it's not a hill to go die on. That's not, that's not that critical to the health and the life of the church. Uh, and... And Steve put this in his notes, and I would agree with this as well myself. He says, for me, there are fewer and fewer areas that are speculative the more that I study. So that's really good. But we need to be humble about that and realize if we're still not sure about an issue, then we're not sure about an issue. And if it's not super clear in Scripture right off the bat, we don't want to you know, plant ourselves so hard on that. We want to make sure that we are focusing more on the items that are the life and the health of the church then, right, finally, how do I proceed? How do I proceed with someone who is disagreeing with me? Well, do so with love. Do so with love. And what does that mean? The question is, what does that mean? It means making sure that you have an understanding and a listening ear. Okay, you have an, you're, you're listening to them. You're not dismissing what they're saying right off the bat. That's important uh make sure you seek to understand what their what their rationale is try to understand them don't again go too quickly and and assume that you know already what their rationale is you might but you don't know for sure until you've heard them out and be patient be patient that's what love is it's patience like 1st Corinthians 13 talks about try to genuinely understand exactly what they're advocating. And here's a really key thing that I have to work on a lot, because I don't always do this very naturally. Ask questions. Ask questions. That's a, that means that the conversation is going to take longer. That means you're going to have to set aside what you want to tell that person and ask questions. Because the more you ask questions, it will diffuse possible uh, loaded situations that might come up as a result. Ask questions. Ask questions. Uh, That's a really good counseling technique, by the way. If you're counseling someone, you should start counseling, not by just kind of asking a couple questions, like, okay, well, then you just need to do this, and then you're done. Ask lots of questions. Seek to understand, because a lot of times what people come, especially with serious issues in counseling, what they come with in counseling to you is not the main issue. There's something deeper that they have, but they're guarding it because they want to know, how is he going to handle this issue before I really unload the serious issue, okay? Ask lots of questions. Get, not that you're trying to dig in and hunt for this problem that may or may not be there, but ask lots of questions to make sure you understand what's going on. Okay? And do this with learning. Do this with learning. Oh, sorry. I may have missed something there. Do this with learning. What have I missed in my understanding of this doctrine so far? Make sure that you're doing this, approaching this in a humble way. Remember that you have not arrived in everything with Scripture, as much as we like to think maybe we have. We need to be humble, the fact that we haven't, we don't fully understand everything at this point. But also, don't compromise your position. Stand on your convictions in Scripture. If you have convictions in Scripture, you should stand upon them and defend them. But be humble enough to hear what other people are saying. And, uh, and then, if you are standing in the correct position and you have a, a good mindset about it, you should be able to defend it. You should be able to defend it. Do so with patience. We already talked about that. You know that you could ask this question to someone who's disagreeing with you. What is it that you think I'm saying? Tell me what you think I'm saying. Help me understand. So you can hear it from them. Because they might be misunderstanding what you're saying. And maybe there's a semantics issue going on, and you actually are more aligned than you actually thought you were, which is always nice. You know, like when you finally get to that point in the conversation, it's like, I think we're just, I think this is kind of a semantics issue, and your definition of this is not quite my definition of this, so let's go to scripture and understand what this term actually means. And when you finally get to that, then you're like, oh, I think we're actually more aligned than we thought. It's great. And then also do this with a mindset to build the relationship. To build the relationship. How can this relationship be an opportunity that honors the Lord? How can we further this relationship that would glorify God? How can we be more aligned? Like Philippians says, to be more unified of mind. To be one soul minded. That we would have the same mind on things. The goal is to pursue that. And that's what Ephesians 4 says is the ultimate end of the body of Christ. Is that we would be one unified man in our thinking and in our living. Okay, so that's how you would deal with doctrinal disagreements. Um, well, that's, that's a lot of tactics at least you could use to do that. All right, I know that was a lot, and I really don't have time for questions on that. But if you have questions, you can always ask me afterwards because we need to really get to another section, which is on the inspiration, authority, and inerrancy of Scripture. And this one's uh, a pretty beefy one. So let me go ahead and transition our PowerPoint, and then we'll jump over to this one. Okay, this is going to be... um, I think this is going to be a really fun one, actually. And I think that if you're a genuine Christian, you should love this section because you're dealing with... Oh, hey, look at that. Well, I decided to turn off. Let's see here. Uh, Duplicate. There we go. I think... No? Yeah. There we go. So Windows likes to think on its own. It's become sentient, and uh, which is not surprising in our AI technology. And it decided that when I switched PowerPoints, for some reason, it would change the projector settings without me touching anything. So that's weird. All right. Anyways. Okay. Uh, we're going to be dealing with the inspiration first, then we'll talk about authority of scripture, which is important really important, sometimes is not talked about a lot in these kinds of situations, um, because it doesn't start with an I, I feel like whenever we're dealing with the doctrine of scripture, it's like it has to start with an I you know, inerrancy, infallibility inspiration, right, but authority is really important as well, and then uh, finally we'll, we'll wrap up with inerrancy here, okay, so let's talk about the inspiration of scripture And we'll talk about here the preparation of the biblical writers. How did this actually take place? How did the writers of Scripture pen the words from God or communicate the words of God? It wasn't always written down. It was often communicated verbally. The human authors that we know from Scripture, especially, had characteristics that are common to all people as they are even created in the likeness of God. And so we all share in common with them that same human likeness. So that means that they had relational and linguistic capacity with yet thought patterns that follow after God. Okay, And so it's very interesting that these human authors have this unique perspective... Uh, from their own vantage point, from their own preferred terminology, from their own style of writing, and yet at the same time, God used that to communicate his precise words, the exact words that he wanted. And by the way, the only way that this actually works is if God is perfectly sovereign and in control over every situation in life because he's using unique Uh, characteristics with that person providentially in his inspiration plan. Uh, They had a personal perspective. They had a time and a place that they lived. They had different education level interests, probably hobbies, you could say, different backgrounds, different jobs. They had Uh, Like I talked about, a unique vocabulary and style. Uh, And there was a, a divine providence working in their ministry that was calling them to this and then using that to preserve Scripture through their communication. It's very interesting. And... we would argue, obviously, that the human author's research and their writing in Scripture was done in a a very supernatural way. Luke chapter 1 actually talks about this. We don't have time to go over there, but Luke chapter 1, verses 1 through 4, we see Luke communicate the purpose for why he wrote his gospel. And he he talks about, and it's kind of implied in there, that yes, everyone was writing these things down, uh, their own accounts. You could almost hear in there the fact that there was their own vantage point of the account. Not that it's inaccurate, but just that it was from a a unique vantage point. And you can see that in Matthew and in Mark and in John. And then Luke adds his own gospel. There were different vantage points because they're bringing at it from different angles, from people who witnessed it from different points of view. And so that that was definitely how it was communicated. And at the same time, God was at work inspiring and superintending these words, to, to be his very words in Scripture. When we talk about the superintendence of the biblical writers, we're talking about God's oversight in this process. 2 Peter chapter 1, verses 19, specifically through verse 21, talks about this uh, specifically. Let's turn our Bibles over there because this is going to be important. 2 Peter chapter 1. This passage plays a huge role into this. And for many of you, you probably could list off passages that relate to the inspiration of Scripture. There are a handful that are really unique and important in this discussion. 2 Peter chapter 1, verse 19. And we have the prophetic word, which is more sure, to which you do well, paying attention to it as to a lamp which shines in a dark place. The word there is like a murky place, murky and dark. Until the day dawns and the morning star rises in your hearts. Verse 20, knowing this, first of all, that no prophecy of Scripture happens from one's own interpretation. For no prophecy was born of a man's will, I'm reading it literally from the text, so you have an idea, because this is really interesting. In other words, it says, no human will carried this word or this prophecy. It was not a human word that carried it. However, on the contrary, men spoke from God being carried by the Holy Spirit. Interesting. It uses a play on words for the word carried there. Men spoke from God. So it's like <laughs> you can imagine the Holy Spirit like literally lifting them up and carrying them along as they're speaking the words from God. This was not something that they ultimately did. They're not the ones doing the walking. The Spirit is doing the walking. And yet they're still participating by communicating as they go. Okay? That's kind of the picture of what's being described here. And the context of this passage, it's, in the context of Peter uh, describing his own experience where he was on the Mount of Transfiguration. And he saw a picture of the kingdom of God with Moses and Elijah and Jesus there and the glory unveiled. And I love how it puts such a primacy on the word of God because he says yes I've seen all of that and I don't reject the fact that it was real it was a real experience and yet verse 19 you have an even more sure prophetic word than that the word of God is more sure than my personal experience on the Mount of Transfiguration and it was a real experience so when you're talking and working with charismatic theology Yes? This is a great passage to help them to come to. Because at the end of the day, you have to defend your faith not upon your what? Your experiences, but what? The Word of God. And Peter would tell you that every day, hands down. Because he had a way better experience than what? Any charismatic person has ever had in the history of mankind. Right? Uh, They might say that they've had a better experience, but the problem is is that they have no way, they have no second party to testify to it like Peter, James, and John do. Okay, That's really important. So, we can see that this is even referring to not just oracles and prophecy. Notice how he uses the word scripture. It's um, there in verse... 20 no prophecy of scripture that's writings that's the word writings we're not just talking about oral tradition here so this is this is something where peter recognizes that the old testament and everything leading up to the point that he's writing this letter is truly something that comes directly from god and is more sure than even the personal experiences that people may have related to god Okay, so that would be how this kind of gives you a little introduction on how the writers had a superintendence from God over them that helped them to communicate the words of God directly. Oops, did I miss a couple of things? I did. I'm sorry. I had a couple of things there too. But it just describes a little bit more what we talked about. The primacy of the, of the prophetic word, how important that is over the personal experiences, the origin of Scripture, and the fact that this is actually talking about Scripture in this text. It's not just oral 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 words and then the whole concept that I talked about about being carried along by the Holy Spirit being lifted uh, he's lifting them alright moving on to how the documents of scripture are inspired let me give you a, a definition here that might be helpful from Ryrie God superintended the human authors of the Bible so, that they composed and recorded without error his message to mankind in the words of their original writings. So, God is the one that's ultimately superintending this. You know, the Holy Spirit is carrying them, he's bearing them. And they compose, they're the ones that are actually physically writing it or speaking it. And they did so without error, but there's a caveat: they did so without error in the original documents, because we know that there are hundreds, thousands of documents of Scripture that go back to the early days of the the church, and um, even the early days, even the well, I should say the later days of Israel as a nation. And we have those documents even today. and there are minor copying disagreements, but very, very minor. And so the point is, is obviously not every document that we have that was copied is truly uh, accurate to its fullest way, to its fullest means. But the original communication as it was written or as it was spoken was truly accurate in every detail, in every word, in every grammatical situation. And so we would use this term... Verbal plenary inspiration. All the words together are inspired. That's what plenary means. It means everything, comprehensively, all of it. That's the plenary part. And then the verbal part being obviously the terminology. Every word, every word matters. Every word is accurate and truly from God. And so we're basically saying every word, and that means if it's every word, then every grammatical uh, Nuance that you can find in Scripture. And this is a great passage because we want to talk about the meaning of inspiration and obviously another really important text 2 Timothy chapter 3. Turn your Bibles over there, 2 Timothy chapter 3. You've probably heard a number of sermons on 2 Timothy chapter 3, verse 16 and 17 but it is a hallmark and a foundation of our faith upon which we stand. 2 Timothy chapter 3, verse 16. All Scripture, every writing, is breathed out by God. Good translation there. God breathed. And it is profitable for teaching and for reproof and for correction and for training in righteousness. Why? So that the man of God may be adequate, equipped for every good work. That is a foundation where we where we rest our faith upon. The fact that God actually breathed out Scripture. And that's something <coughs> we want to talk about a little bit about and just drill into, because this concept of Scripture, the Greek word graphe in, um, in the text here, as which was also the same word that was used in 2 Peter 1 when it talked about Scripture, uh, it, is, it is something that is talking about specifically the writings of Scripture, those things that were written down as opposed to just the things that were orally communicated. So that's important. And 2 Peter 3, verse 15, actually uh, brings this out even in the at the New Testament level, not just the Old Testament. Because you could argue, okay, so when Paul's talking with Timothy, he's talking about the Old Testament, because that's mostly what Timothy had written down at that time. So you're just saying, basically, that the Old Testament is, is inspired. But the New Testament... You know, that's still up for grabs. The jury's still out on that. But we see evidence of this even in Second Peter chapter 3, verse 15, where Paul's, or Peter says about Paul's letters, very interesting. He says, count the patience of our Lord as salvation, just as our beloved brother Paul also wrote to you according to the wisdom that was given to him, as he does in all of his letters and all of Paul's letters when he speaks in them of these matters. And there are some things in them that are hard to understand. Yeah, that's true, right, about Paul. We get that. We can relate with that. Yeah, Paul is sometimes hard to understand. Yeah, he goes at very deep levels. And he says, and people use this, the ignorant and the unstable, they actually use this and they twist this to their own destruction. Listen to his words very carefully. As they do to the other scriptures. It literally says to the rest of the scriptures. It means that Paul's writings are part of those scriptures, and they also twist they twist his words as well as the the rest of the corpus of scriptures. It's definitely communicating, I think, directly, even explicitly, that Paul Peter is acknowledging Paul's writings as direct scripture. That's important. And I want you to note something, too, about this word graphe, which is writings. And that is is that the writings are inspired by God. They are God-breathed. But not the what? Not the writers. Not the writers. That's important. Because when you're talking with a Catholic, and he says that the Pope is inspired by God, that is unbiblical. The Bible never says that. No one is inspired, but the Scripture is. And when the Pope, who often goes against Scripture, says something, then you know, well, there's the divergence, right? There's the divergence. The word is to breathe out. We um, kind of mentioned that in the translation. Yes, some translations say inspired. And that works. I can understand why people would say that, but it's misleading. It can be misleading. Because the word is not really, um, like, the text exists, and then God breathes into it, like, um, the text is already there, and then he inspires it, and it kind of comes alive, right? No, no, no. The, the word is literally, is breathed out by God. These are his exact words. It's not just the, the human authors wrote it independent of God and then God like, breathed into it you know, and brought like, a, a separate life into the words. No, no. These are words that come directly from God's mouth. They come from him. It doesn't speak of anything necessarily dealing with inspiration, like inspiring something, but rather that he is only spiring. <laughs> he is the one that's breathing that out. And um, this is actually a quote from Warfield here. And let me go ahead. And, I was kind of noting this, but let me go ahead and read this to you. Warfield says, the Greek term has nothing to say of inspiring or of, uh, or of inspiration. It speaks only of aspiring or s- Spiration. Spiration. What it says of Scripture is, not that it is breathed into by God, or is the product of divine inbreathing into its human authors, but that it is breathed out by God. God breathed the product of the creative breath of God. Okay. So B.B. Warfield talks about that in his... Theology book on page 133 that's helpful it helps us to get that clarity and we see that specifically in uh, the, the original text in, in the Greek text specifically but sometimes our translations will say inspiration and it, just, it can just be misleading we have to be careful that we don't misunderstand what's being said there and it is the product of the breath of God, and we even see that um, even at creation. That yes, I know there's like God breathing into man life, right? There is that idea. So don't get that picture wrong, because these are really God's words, literally coming from Him. But it does have that kind of life force to it as well. These are God's words coming from His mouth, and it has that breathing concept. Job chapter thirty-three. We just talked about Job the last two weeks. Job chapter thirty-three, verse four. Elihu. You should know this by now. Elihu is the one who's speaking at that point, and he says, The Spirit of God has made me, and the breath of the Almighty gives me life. And so his argument to Job is, You should listen to what I'm saying, because it aligns with what God would say. And that's true. We actually see that confirmed in the text. And so he's, um, he's making an, uh, an implicit note there that he has divine inspiration that he's giving to Job. Okay, so that gives us a little bit of idea into the, the word um graphe, writing, and how the scriptures are inspired. Now we're going to talk about this biblical theme of inspiration and start with the Old Testament. Start with the Old Testament here. Direct speech from God to the people happened. We see that in the the Old Testament text. We see that in Exodus chapter 20 at the giving of the Ten Commandments, yes? We see that in Deuteronomy chapter 4, verse 12. It talks about God speaking with the people. Genesis chapter 12, when he speaks to Abraham and gives him the Abrahamic covenant. Exodus chapter 3, God speaks with Moses, an extensive dialogue as he prepares Moses to lead the people. Direct speech from God. It occurs everywhere in Scripture, doesn't it? Everywhere. Everywhere. These are historical realities that occur time and time and time again. You have prophetic speech as well, where you have a prophet speaking on behalf of God, Thus says the Lord, First Kings chapter 20, verse 13, uh, Thus says the Lord, Have you seen all this great multitude? Behold, I will deliver it into your hand today, and you shall know that I am Yahweh. Or 2 Samuel chapter 12, verse 1, Nathan coming to David and speaking word directly from God. Okay, So there are spoken words that we have recorded throughout Scripture everywhere, especially in the Old Testament, you see it a lot. But then you also have written words, and that's even testified in the Bible itself, which is the written word. Okay, But you actually have testimony of people, write this down, make this a written document. For instance, you have several accounts of the writing of the words that were then to be taken in written form, such as Exodus chapter 17, verse 14. The Lord said to Moses, Write this for a memorial in the book and recount it in the hearing of Joshua. I will utterly blot out the remembrance of Amalek from under heaven. Write it down. Write it down. There's written documentation that's taking place there. Or you have in Jeremiah chapter 30, verse 2. Jeremiah 30, verse 2, Write in the book for yourself all the words that I have spoken to you. Writing Scripture down. Or Daniel chapter 12, verse 4, Seal up the words and seal up the book. Why does he say that except that what? It was written down. Okay, It was written down. Seal it up for a time. Okay, so there are written words from God. It's testified in Scripture. But we also see this in how the New Testament even views the Old Testament. Okay, So you have the Old Testament writings were thought of as speech from God. Matthew 1, verse 22. And we see this as a formula throughout Matthew. And we've been seeing this on Sunday mornings in the preaching. A Sunday morning preaching. So all of this was done, that it might be fulfilled, which was spoken by the Lord through the prophet. We hear that formula time and time again. This was something that the prophet said, but it was something that really was God's words through that prophet. And it was written down in the Old Testament. We have individual words where the New Testament is viewing the Old Testament in such a way that even a very word itself matters. It matters to the case that's being made. It is true in every single grammatical nuance and word. Such as in Matthew chapter 22 verse 45, Jesus proves that David called the Messiah Lord in Psalm 110. Uh, And even Paul's example of the use of the word, uh, not just the word itself, but the very um, plurality or lack of plurality of the word seed in Galatians chapter 3 verse 16. He says to seed, to your seed, not to seeds. Wow! The actual, like, how whether it's a plural or a singular, actually matters in the text. So we should be paying attention to every nuance of Scripture. And the more that we do so, the more that we find it actually confirms the reliability of Scripture. I would love to spend Literally the next three years, just showing you every example I could find of how that's true. Because we could do that, and we still wouldn't exhaust it. It's incredible. <coughs> there are minor details from Old Testament prophecies, excuse me, minor details from Old Testament prophecies fulfilled in Christ. Uh, for instance, you have Matthew chapter 2 talking about Jesus will be born in a very specific town called Bethlehem. And that's prophesied in Matthew chapter, or excuse, Micah chapter 5 and verse 2. So we see even little details like that matter. And the scribes of that day knew it. And they weren't even entirely godly. And they knew it. Yes? And we even see a testimony of the fact that in Luke 24, verse 25, um, really, really important passage there as well, where Jesus is speaking to the men on the road to Emmaus and demonstrating how the Old Testament entirely is worthy of their belief. O foolish ones and slow of heart to believe in all the prophets which have spoken. Ought not the Messiah to have suffered and these, uh, suffered these things and then to enter into his glory? And so then it says, And Jesus began from Moses, which would be right from Genesis, yes, the beginning, from Moses and all of the prophets, that's almost the entire Old Testament basically, and he expounded to them, and then here's the kicker, in all the scriptures. How many of the scriptures? all of it, the things that were concerning himself. He expounded that for for them. What is he saying? The Old Testament is worthy of being believed entirely. And here's something that's really important as well. The New Testament use of the Old Testament. What do I mean by that? I mean when the New Testament quotes the Old Testament or alludes to the Old Testament. When the New Testament quotes or alludes to the Old Testament, it always honors the context of the Old Testament. Really important. It never redefines it. Despite what many evangelicals will say today, it is not true. And you can actually demonstrate that in every single situation. The key is is demonstrating that and showing that. But it is true. And that's why I would love to spend another three years walking through every single one of those examples. Because it's so important. I've already shown you a few of those in Romans about how the terminology of even a, a two-letter word like like or as makes a huge difference in understanding how the author is actually using that Old Testament text. Really important. Like It, it matters. And if you don't have like or as, then you should be skeptical for why, he's, why you would want to interpret something else into that passage, and it's not. Okay. So New Testament use of the Old Testament is really important to understanding, ah oh man, I don't have time for this, but really understanding how the Bible, I want you to think about it this way, the Bible thinks about itself. The Bible thinks about itself. That's an interesting thing. We don't always think about it that way. But if the Bible is truly from a mind, which is God, then the Bible has thought, and the Bible actually has self-analysis, yes? And so we can see that self-analysis how? By how the Bible uses itself. So you would have not just New Testament using Old Testament, right? That's the, the most known way of how the Bible talks about itself, how it thinks about itself, but how the Old Testament quotes the Old Testament. Yes? And it uses it quite a bit. If we can tap into what is the hermeneutic, what is the Bible interpretation with which the Bible quotes itself, with which it talks about itself, then we understand how we should approach the Bible. Does that make sense? Mm-hmm. Okay? here, okay, cool. New Testament work words of God... Um we have the the New Testament even described as direct speech from God. We see this with specific examples of the baptism of Christ, and um, the transfiguration, the conversion of Saul, Peter's vision in Acts chapter 10. Um, And the New Testament records God's speech through Christ and the apostles as well, and so we see that. I'm sorry I'm moving kind of quickly here, but there's a couple of really important things I do want to get to today. The Bible's claims are the greatest authority of inspiration. That's important. Um, I one time had... I broke my leg once, back when I was in college, and I had a... a, my foot doctor that was working with me with my ankle, and I had torn all the ligaments in the ankle, so it was really painful. And he he knew I went to master's, so he was not a Christian at all and I think he may have been even atheistic but he said why do you believe that the Bible is true and I began to give him like external evidences and things like that and it was really good because he challenged me and said the Bible is true if your view is right the Bible is true because it says it is and I'm like wow touche uh, yeah, that's a good point. <laughs> You're right. You know, it was like the one thing I was like, well, he's not going to accept that, so I'm just going to... But he was like, no, I mean, that's the way it should be. I'm like, wow, I'm surprised that you would say that. And he was right. Uh, it needs to start there. It doesn't have to entirely end there either, but it needs to start there. The Bible is true because it says it is. If the Bible doesn't say it, then we that's that's a problem. It's a problem. It actually testifies to that. Extra-biblical evidence is of great value, but ultimately cannot prove the Bible true by what I would say empirical standards. Empirical being what you can see, hear, taste, touch, and smell, right? That kind of thing. It, you can't prove it from a scientific empirical standard from that evidence, Uh in that case because, in fact, that would actually destroy the notion of what Hebrews 11.6 requires in that God requires faith for those who come to him. So it would actually undo that whole concept. But extra-biblical evidence is still of great value. Especially, it's helpful for those who are coming along, who are skeptical but are coming along in coming to faith. It, it, is, it can be very helpful. It shouldn't be the sole. It's not going to be the sole reason why they believe at the end of the day, but it is helpful. In fact, we all believe for various reasons. You could even list them off yourself as to various reasons of why you objectively you believe in the objective truth of Scripture. There are reasons why. In fact, Acts chapter one brings this out. If you have a, a moment, turn your Bibles over to Acts chapter one. Acts chapter one. The Bible does not discourage evidence. This is really interesting. Yes, it puts a primacy on the fact that the Word of God uh, testifies to itself that it is inspired Scripture, but it also puts a lot of emphasis on the fact that the evidence matters, and it's important, because it puts it into objective reality. Okay? Acts chapter 1, verse 3, he presented himself alive after he suffered with what? with many convincing proofs. You see that? Why is that necessary? Because it makes it objective. It makes it real. John chapter 10, you don't don't have to turn over there, John chapter 10 verse 37, Jesus says, Believe in me. But even if you don't believe in me yet, believe in my works, so that you may know. That I am in the Father and he is in me. Yes? Why would Jesus say that if he wasn't also encouraging that the evidence matters? It does matter. It helps to keep it objective and not subjective. Okay, still, the Bible is the ultimate authority about itself. The Bible is true because it says it is, and that's really interesting, because when you say that to someone who is really skeptical of that, the Bible is true because it says it is. Isn't that circular reasoning? Well, this is interesting. Every worldview boils down to circular reasoning. Every worldview does. It boils down. Not every, never, not every argument is circular reasoning, obviously, but it's built upon a foundation of circular reasoning. Everybody's thought process is built upon that. The question is, what is the source of the final authority of that worldview? What is the source of the final authority of that worldview? Most of the time, you'll you'll hear that argument. You're you know having you have circular reasoning. It's usually from an atheist. It's usually from some you know someone who believes in evolution or something like that. Um, for evolution, scientific observation that is the final authority. That's the base concept that they stand upon. Truth is only authoritative in as much as it has been discovered and personally observed. That is the only truth. Which is ironic because they don't know everything, so that's impossible and it will always be impossible for them. Uh, An example of evolutionary circular argument, this is great. The Bible cannot be true because it contains miracles. And miracles violate the laws of nature. Well, that kind of begs the question, doesn't it? It's a circular argument. Well, you could even ask the question, well, why can't miracles be possible? Because science can't account for it. Well, why can't science account for miracles? Because miracles aren't possible. You just went in a circle, right? It begs the question. It's simply because you just don't believe in miracles, which are, by definition, outside of the bounds of science, right? So you can't confirm it or not confirm it with science. It's, it's, it's out so there two mutually exclusive concepts. In fact, I got this quote from Dr. Jason Lyle. Uh, he's my favorite biblical creation scientist. Um, in his book, Discerning Truth, on page 27, I think it's helpful. I wanted to bring this to your attention because um, I know that these, these kinds of things can be eye-opening and insightful and helpful as you're engaging people in these scenarios. But he says, it should be noted that there are certain special cases where circular reasoning is unavoidable and not necessarily fallacious. Okay, it's not a fallacy. There are some situations where the conclusion of an argument must be assumed at the outset by anyone who's participating in the debate. And then here's an example he gives. This is great. Without laws of logic, no laws of logic, we could not make a valid argument. That's assumption number one. Without laws of logic, we can't make a valid argument. That's number one. Number two. We can make a valid argument. So he's making two assumptions. Without laws of logic, you can't make a valid argument. Number two, we can make a valid argument. So therefore, number three, there must be laws of logic that exist. <laughs> right? But what's the, what's the interesting thing about that? This argument is perfectly reasonable. It's valid, but it's also subtly circular, isn't it? It's a circular argument. Right? Right? are like, well, you haven't really proved your point. Well, the whole point is that we can't even have a conversation without assuming that that's the case. Yes? So everyone believes this. Everyone holds to this. If you can have a rational conversation with anyone, they believe this. Okay, Without actually having scientific evidence to show it. It's just really based upon the assumption that we're making. So we have tacitly assumed what we are trying to prove in this argument, but he says, but it is absolutely unavoidable in this case. This line of reasoning turns out to be the most powerful argument for the biblical worldview. Why? Why is this one of the most powerful arguments for the biblical worldview? Because all non-biblical circles of knowledge are ultimately arbitrary and inconsistent. In other words, they can't explain why there are laws of logic. No Non biblical uh, circular reasoning can do that because there is, I guess you could say, um, I guess you could say, especially the evolutionary worldview, they cannot explain why there are laws of logic. There's no, there's no reason in their worldview for that to exist. They have no way to verify that. But we have a we have a greater assumption in worldview that demonstrates that there is a mind, God. Who gives us laws of logic that actually makes sense in our worldview? Yes. In other words, circular reasoning is actually a valid argument. It's actually a valid argument. Everyone has to use it to reason through anything, but it is what we need to be wary of: is inconsistent or arbitrary circular reasoning. That's an error. That's what we're looking for. It's not all circular reasoning. It's arbitrary and inconsistent. Circular reasoning. So we need to be careful of that. Okay. So I just wanted to kind of demystify some of that because sometimes we go into like, oh man, what do we do? Do we do we lean on circular reasoning, reasoning heavily, or do we abandon it entirely? You can't abandon it entirely. You have to use it, but you have to use it rightly. Okay. You have to use it rightly. All right. And then the this, the Holy Spirit is the ultimate witness to the inspiration of Scripture. Oops. I didn't. Sorry. Let me see if this. There's another part here. Oh, I forgot the quote. There it is. Right there. Sorry. Um, I read it to you, though, and, and, and I, you also should have the PowerPoints, and I can send those to you if you don't for some reason. Okay, But that's the quote from Dr. Jason Lyle as well. And then, the Holy Spirit is the ultimate witness to the inspiration of Scripture. There is an element where the Holy Spirit has a subjective witness in your heart, and that is essential for you to believe. You will not believe without the Holy Spirit's work in your heart. You must have a subjective testimony of the spirit to turn your will toward god you can even believe all the facts about god and not actually have true saving faith that's really important because really believing is a matter of the will because when when push comes to shove the bible shows to be true in every detail so that's not really the issue The real issue is that I don't want that to be the case. So I want to come up with other ideas and solutions that fit what I want to believe. But even though that's true and you need subjective testimony of the Spirit in your heart to believe, objective reasons are what showcase the reality of it. And I think one of the, the greatest instances of this is intertextuality. And sadly, we didn't make it all the way through. Oh, my goodness. And we didn't get to my favorite part. Oh, man. Because we are basically out of time. So we're going to have to pick this up next time and string this out a little bit longer. And I guess it really is important enough that we, we should do that. Because we're going to talk about the authority of Scripture. And... What are the objective reasons why you can believe in the Bible? Not just the internal testimony part, which is really important, really essential, but what are the objective reasons that hands down makes the biblical worldview stand out so much that it, is, it has objective authority over all mankind? That's what we'll talk about sometime. I can't try to think where we would do it. Probably two weeks from now is probably when we'll talk about that, Okay. All right. Thank you for letting me keep you here until right up to ten thirty. Let's go ahead and pray, Father. Thank you so much for your your word. It is true. It is not just a subjective thing of our mind. It is something that is reality. And you went through many with many proofs and many demonstrations that could be observed and witnessed. By mankind, over and over and over again. And you call us to believe in you. And that those things would help us even further to believe in you. It reminds me of John the Baptist when he was struggling in prison, wondering if this is truly the Messiah. And what was preached to him is what is preached to us. That the blind see and the deaf hear and the lame walk. These things are truly being testified by people who watch. It is true. The Bible is true. And it stands upon a foundation, a historical foundation of things that really happened. And Lord God, that should bolster our faith. It should give us encouragement that we have a worldview that actually comports with reality and that actually accounts for everything that matters in this world. So Lord, may that give even strength of faith to those who might even today be struggling with some of that. And Lord, may it give us even that much more of a worshipful demeanor as we come and approach the, the, the preaching of your word and the singing and the, uh, the fellowship here in this main service this morning. We pray this all for your glory and for your honor. In Jesus' name, amen. Thank you, everyone, and we'll see you there in the, the morning service.